Well, welcome, 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 those of you online, welcome to you, welcome to week two of Starting Points, and just a quick recap of where we were last week, is that everything had a starting point. You had a starting point, your career, your education, uh, every relationship, if, if you have children, your parenting had a starting point, everything has a starting point, and how something starts usually determines how well it goes from that point forward. But something we don't consider, or maybe we forget at times, is that faith has a starting point as well. And for many of us, that happened somewhere in childhood. Somewhere in childhood, we were handed some building blocks that became the starting point, the foundation, the, the, you know, the framework for our faith. And it maybe happened because of a conversation with a parent or pastor or priest or something heard in mass or at Sunday school or at vacation Bible school. Things like God is loving or God created everything or God is good. God, God rewards good and punishes evil. Maybe you've heard God, God answered prayers or God is always with you. God heals. God provides. And these became the framework, the starting point, the foundation of our faith and childhood. But fast forward a few years, maybe in high school or college or after you got out of college or maybe after you got married or had kids or after your kids moved out of the house, many of us found ourselves confronted with the realities that our childhood faith had not prepared us for. We came confronted with the reality of pain, hardship, death, maybe bankruptcy, unanswered prayers, despair, miscarriages, cancer, abuse, a good argument from a college professor, divorce, and the starting points of our faith took a hit. The questions, the pressures, the realities of life chipped away at our childhood faith. And a gap was formed between what we were experiencing and what we were told to believe. And as a result, some of us lost faith. Some of us abandoned faith. Some of us left faith behind. Not necessarily because we wanted to, just because it wasn't important anymore. It wasn't relevant anymore. Well, something I've observed over and over and over again is that the starting point for faith changes everything. The, the right starting point for faith changes everything, but the wrong one does too. And I think one of the reasons that people abandon faith, lose faith, become disinterested in faith, question their faith is because they didn't have the right starting point. So what we decided to do in this series, in this series is hit the restart button and ask the question, what would it like to start over in regards to faith? Like, where would, we, where would we start if we started all over as it relates to faith? What's the starting point for faith, particularly the quote-unquote Christian faith? And this series, a series is so important for anyone who's skeptical of faith, has abandoned a faith, maybe is interested in faith, is new to faith, is maybe for those of you who are strong in faith, and, and for every person who's in any spot but is interested in starting, restarting, reigniting, or growing in their faith because... With the right starting point, your faith can withstand the pressures and realities of life. With the right starting faith, your faith can grow stronger through whatever season you find yourself in. With the right starting point, it doesn't remove questions, it doesn't remove doubts, but with the right starting point, you're able to stand firm in the midst of those questions and doubts. With the right starting point, the gap between what you're experiencing and what you believe you see is easily reconcilable. With the right starting point, you're able to share your faith in a way that helps other people start their faith journeys as well. And with the right starting point, God works through your faith to transform you more into everything he created you to be. Last week, we talked about the starting point for faith is not the Bible says it, so just believe it. We discovered last week that the starting point for faith is actually a question. 
But the question is not, is there, you know, is there a little literal Garden of Eden? And the question is not, you know, was there an actual ark and a flood? The question is not, is the world 6,000 or 6 billion years old? The question is not, why do God and science seem to contradict each other at times? The question is not, how could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? The question is not, why hasn't God answered my prayers? The starting point for faith is a question, but the question is, who is Jesus? As a matter of fact, this is the question that all faiths has to confront at some point in time. All the other questions we have, those are, those are interesting. Those are important, but they're not the starting point. The question that has always been, you know, since the time of Jesus in the first century and will always be the starting point question for people who want to start, who want to restart, who want to maintain, or who want to grow their faith is who is Jesus? Now listen, if you missed last week, please go back and watch. It's so important you do because all of these weeks build off each other. So make sure you go back and watch week one if you weren't here. Well, that's where we left off last week. And I'm going to swing back around to this question, who is Jesus, in just a few weeks few weeks from today. But today I want to talk about a word that will eventually surface when it comes to the starting point of faith. Any faith for that matter, not just faith in Jesus. And It's an ugly, it's an uncomfortable word that none of us like, but sooner or later it surfaces, and the word is sin. Now, in our culture, it has... It, this word has pretty much become a theological word. We only use it in relations to us and God. I mean, you don't use it in real life, right? If your kid does something stupid, you know, again, you know, says something dumb to, to their mother, you don't say, come in here and let's talk about your sin against your mother. If an employee is late on an assignment or on a, you know, on a project, you don't say, come to my office, we need to talk about some of your sins. You know, when you're driving and you get a speeding ticket, you don't get a sin citation. You know, and but many, it's, so we don't use it in the real world, but maybe, uh, many, maybe you uh, have completely abandoned this word altogether. I mean, when you think about it, we just really have. And maybe we've abandoned it because if we say we've sinned, it makes us sinners. And many of us have come to believe that being branded as that way leaves us condemned with absolutely no hope. Because what we've been told, maybe what you've heard, and because of that you've concluded is not only does being a sinner condemn me to hell, but God is actually looking forward to sending me to hell. So if I say I've sinned, I'm toast, it's over, there is no hope. And so we've just kind of abandoned this whole word sin altogether. The other reason I think we have abandoned this word and many people have abandoned this word altogether is because saying I'm a sinner is like looking in the mirror and saying, whoo, there's the problem. And none of us want to admit that we might be the problem. But we know we're not perfect. So in our efforts to resolve this tension to describe our less than perfect behaviors and our less than perfect decisions, we've substituted a different word that's easier for us to bear. And chances are you've done this. We've replaced sin with mistake. And it's, it's so crazy how we've done this, and it just makes us feel better about ourselves. I mean, if I went around the room right now, and I said, hey, who recently has made a bad, ugly mistake? There isn't anyone in this room that wouldn't be like, no, yeah, me. Raise my hand. Yeah, I've made some bad, ugly mistakes recently. But if just without, I said, hey, I'm going to replace that word with sin. Who recently has, you know, committed some bad, ugly, hurtful sins recently? You know, the front row would be like, is anyone else? 
because I don't know that I want to be alone. And like, because they'll be like, "What'd you do?" You know what I mean? But mistakes. So there's something so heavy, so ugly, so condemning about this word sin that we've replaced it with mistake, and it's this is terrible. And let me tell you why. Because we've all seen that politician or that celebrity, you know, get on TV or have a news conference, and you know they're confessing to a multi, you know, year affair, and they get on there and say, you know, I'm so sorry, you know, I destroyed the city, I destroyed my marriage, I destroyed the family, I destroyed my reputation, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. But does, does, does mistake really capture the magnitude of what they did? Well, their spouse would say no. I mean, their spouse said, that wasn't a mistake. Like, I feel betrayed, I feel violated. And you know this, like we all know, mistakes involve insufficient knowledge and are accidental. A mistake is something a sixth grader makes on a math test. A mistake is something we make when we're filing our taxes. A mistake is, you know, turning in the wrong direction when we're trying to get somewhere in our car. And you go, hey, what you did as you're sitting on TV and confessing that multi-year affair, when you say mistake, like what you did, like is way, way bigger than mistake. And we've all, we've all done the same thing. We've all used the word mistake even though we knew exactly what we were doing. Sometimes we make mistakes on purpose, don't we? Don't you? Isn't it true that some of the things you call mistakes you did on purpose? I mean, is that even possible? I mean, can you make the same mistake for four years? That's way bigger than that. Other times we plan on our, our mistakes. And some of us have already planned our next mistake with him. Or our next mistake with her. Some of us have already planned the, next, the mistake we're going to make on spring break. Or this coming Saturday night. Or as soon as we get her alone again. I mean, can there be such thing as a premeditated mistake? What, what do you call a mistake that you've planned? I think mistake, don't you, don't you just think it falls way short? Then sometimes we make the same mistakes over and over and over. What do you call a person who makes the same mistakes over and over and over? Do you, a, a, a serial mistaker? Like, that, that just doesn't cut it. It's, it's bigger than mistake. It's worse than mistake. It's uglier than all that. I think we've made a mistake by substituting the term mistake for sin. And as uncomfortable as the term sin is, as old school as the term sin is, there's a huge benefit in reintroducing it into our vocabularies, especially in regards to the starting point for faith. And here's why. You can correct a mistake. When you make a mistake, you just correct it. Go back two streets, take a right, say, hey, I'm sorry, I'll fix that. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll do that better next time. I'll do it different next time. I won't make that same mistake again. The problem is you can't correct you. Come on. You, you know, you, you've tried to correct you, you've tried to fix you, and you've had a really hard time doing it, haven't you? I mean, you've tried for years. Your spouse has tried with no luck. You've paid counselors and psychiatrists to help correct you with no long-term success. I mean, some, some of you have blown up friendships and marriages and jobs because you couldn't correct you. I mean, why can't you just stop losing your temper? Why can't you just resist lying? Why can't you just not eat so much? Why can't you just quit drinking so much? Why can't you just stop looking at all that stuff on the internet? Why can't you just correct you? And this is super interesting. Why is it that when we're trying to self-correct and we're doing really good, 
you know, like, hey, hadn't used that credit card for a while, hadn't overeaten in a while, hadn't drinking for quite a, you know, quite a long time. Why is it that when we're doing, trying to self-correct and we're doing so good, why do we want to all of a sudden uncorrect? Ooh, I haven't done that for 13 days. I owe myself one. You know what I mean? Like, if you ever notice how you do that, like, I owe me. Like, why do you want to do something that you want to stop doing? Like, why is it that you resist, you can't resist thinking about doing something that you know hurts you and hurts other people? Well, it's because you can't correct you. And you're, and I'm, the problem. See, the starting point for faith requires an honest look in the mirror and coming to terms with the fact that perhaps you're not a mistaker. Perhaps you have a deeper problem than that. Perhaps sin is a reality even though we want to dumb it down to a mistake. Perhaps you are, in fact, a sinner. Now, I want to make sure we're on the same page about what I mean by that. So this is a 101 kind of basic definition. This isn't like a grand theological definition, so just relax, all you theological people. Okay, here we go. A sinner is someone who knows the difference between right and wrong and chooses to do wrong anyway. It's someone who knows the difference between good and bad and chooses bad anyway. Someone knows the difference between healthy and unhealthy and chooses what's unhealthy anyway. Someone knows the difference between positive and negative and chooses negative anyway. Someone knows the difference between helpful and what's hurtful and chooses what's hurtful anyway. Someone knows the difference between love and hate and chooses to hate anyway. Someone knows the difference between selfless and selfish and chooses what's selfish anyway. Someone knows the difference between light and dark and chooses darkness anyway. Sound like someone you know? Maybe you Maybe everyone else, too. Listen, this should come as no surprise that Jesus talked about sin, but he did so in such an interesting way. And today, I'm, I'm not trying to talk you into putting your faith in Jesus. We're, man, we're, we're not there yet. I just want you to know what, what Jesus consistently said about sin because I'm guessing it's different than how many of us have been communicated to about it. When, when Jesus talked about sin, it was so cool. He talked about it in the context of, you may, some of you may have never heard this before. He talked about it in the context of relationship. And the point Jesus continually made is that sin breaks relationship. And you already know this in the context of real relationships, right? We all know that sinning against a spouse or a friend or a boss, it breaks relationship with them. And Jesus would go, of course. Of course sin breaks relationships with them. But sin breaks relationship with God. Sin breaks relationship with your heavenly Father. And here's why. It's because Jesus, according to Jesus, sin, was a, sin is a violation against God. A violation against holy creator God. It's a violation against his created intent for us, which is to be holy how he is holy. And it's a violation against his created will for us, which is to glorify him. According to Jesus, sin is such a violation against holy creator God that it breaks our relationship with him. And because of that, you would probably assume that Jesus' purpose of talking about sin was to condemn. But it wasn't. Jesus had a much different purpose. Jesus' purpose in talking about sin was not condemnation, but restoration. 
Now, you got to know, Jesus did not call us mistakers. He unapologetically called us sinners, not for the purpose of condemnation, but for the purpose of restoration. Because here's what Jesus knew, and this is so vitally important. As long as we think we're just making mistakes, we'll never seek the thing we need most from God to restore our relationship with him. Let me say that again because this is vitally important. As long as we think we're just making mistakes, we'll never seek the thing we need most from God to restore our relationship with God, which according to Jesus is forgiveness. As long as we think we're mistakers, we'll never seek forgiveness because a mistake doesn't require forgiveness. In any relationship with your spouse or your kid or your parent or a friend or a boss or employee or a coworker, you know the only way, in any relationship, you know the only way for the, a relationship to be restored is for the offender to acknowledge that there was an offense and that they are in need of forgiveness. For any relationship to be restored, you know the offender must look in the eyes of the person they violated and say, I was wrong. It was more than a mistake and I am sorry. I'm asking for your undeserved forgiveness. See, Jesus, he talked about sin in such a different way that it didn't fit any religious paradigm at the time. Jesus taught sin breaks relationship with God. It breaks relationship with your heavenly father. But your heavenly father wants you to be restored. But the only way that happens is to seek his forgiveness. And the only way to do that is to acknowledge that you simply didn't make a mistake. It's much bigger than that. that the only way is to acknowledge that you have sinned. But it's worse than that. The entire reason that you sin is because you were already a sinner. But don't freak out, Jesus would say. That's not the end. It's actually the starting point for your restoration. The starting point for your restoration begins with the recognition of that. See, when Jesus, when he talked about sin, he, he, he made it so all-inclusive that no one could escape. I mean, when Jesus talked about sin, instead of dumbing it down, instead of going, it's okay, you probably didn't know, I'm just maybe because of the way you were raised. No, when Jesus talked about sin, instead of dumbing it down, he raised the standard so stinking high that no one made the passing grade. When Jesus talked about sin, he wanted everyone to know that they were, in fact, sinners. And it's why he said things like this. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, that's, you know, your behavior, your goodness, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who their, like, full-time job was to be, like, really good and stay ceremonially clean, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, Jesus' listeners are like, holy crud, if that's a standard, like, we are doomed. And Jesus is like, I'm not done raising the standard yet. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders be, will be subject to judgment. And they're going, whoo, thank God I'm good on that one. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who's guilty of harboring anger is guilty of murder before God and is going to face the same judgment. And they're like, what? And he's like, yep, and I ain't done yet. You've heard, it, you've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. Woo, good, I'm, good, I'm good there. But I tell you that anyone who thinks of a woman lustfully and they're like, oh, you're kidding me. 
Like, and like, imagine the dude's like looking around like, is my wife here? You know, like, Jesus, like, I need you to let you, like, who has not done that? Looks a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then Jesus just goes on and on and on. Raising the standard so high that no one can make the passing grade. Making sure everyone knew that their relationship with God was broken because they were sinners. And then Jesus rushes in and says, listen, now that you know that, I have some great news for you. God loves sinners. It's why he sent me. I came to seek and to save and restore those who already stand before God condemned because of their sin. But you'll never experience restoration that I'm offering until you acknowledge that you are a sinner. Acknowledging, you know, according to Jesus, acknowledging that does not end in condemnation. Acknowledging that ends in restoration. According to Jesus, you will never be restored to God until you acknowledge that you need to be restored. And mistakers, mistakers think they can self-correct and they never, ever get there. I mean, over and over and over again, Jesus extended forgiveness and restoration to condemn people who were considered beyond redemption. One involved a woman who was caught in the sin of adultery recorded in John chapter 8. And you've got to know, in the first century, any Jew who committed adultery could be put to death because it was such a violation against God. It was such a violation against other peoples. And according to other people, and according to the Hebrew scriptures, this woman who was caught in adultery, she deserved to be stoned to death. And you read this interaction and you see Jesus didn't defend her. Jesus didn't dumb down her sin, and Jesus didn't give her any wiggle room. As a matter of fact, he invited them, go ahead and stone her with one caveat. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw the stone. Any of you who are not guilty of being a sinner, you go ahead and you throw the first one. One by one, they let go of those rocks, and they walked away until it was just Jesus and her standing there alone. And here's how Jesus ends his conversation with this woman. It's so significant. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. He says, you're a sinner. Like, you're guilty. No excuse can justify it. You need to own it. And then he likes to invite her, invites her in and says, and listen. I don't condemn you. Instead, I'm here to offer you something. I'm here to offer you restoration. I mean, Jesus, who raised the standard so high that no one could make the passing grade, declared this condemned woman uncondemned. Whew. That's Jesus. You got to know, Jesus didn't condone sin. No, he didn't. Jesus called sin, sin. And Jesus didn't condemn sinners. Jesus, he never minimalized the seriousness of sin, and he never condemned those who acknowledged that they were sinners. He had a much different objective. 
He wanted to offer them something. See, Jesus' promise was acknowledge that you're a sinner and he will restore you. But try to dance around it, make the excuses, and you'll never know restoration because you'll never believe that you need to be restored. His most famous teaching in this regard is in Luke 15, and we now call this the uh, story of the, uh, excuse me, the parable of the prodigal son. And many of you have heard this uh, parable before, but those of you who haven't, this is a fictitious story that Jesus told to make a point about sin, about condemnation, and about restoration. And in this fictitious story, there's a son who wants his father to die so that he can get his father's inheritance, but his dad just won't die. So he goes to dad and says, dad, hey, just because you won't die, why don't you go ahead and give me my inheritance right now and let's go ahead and pretend that you already are dead. And his father reluctantly gives his son the inheritance and right away the son just rebelliously leaves home and before long blows the entire inheritance. And he finds himself starving. He finds himself homeless. He finds himself dirty. He finds himself hopeless. He finds himself looking in the mirror and for the first time saying, I'm messed up. And I have no other options and nowhere to turn. And says, maybe, just maybe, I could go back home. Not knowing what his father would do when he would get there. Realizing his father had every reason not to restore him. But he's out of options. He's hopeless. And so he takes the long journey back home. And everyone listening to this parable, when Jesus told it, knew that the father represented our heavenly father, God. And that the son is someone who's done something so bad that a regular father would not allow the relationship to be restored. So the son takes a long journey back home. And when he gets there, Jesus puts these words into the mouth of this fictitious son to make a point. The son said to him, Father, three huge words, I have sinned. Not, hey, dad, things got tough. Dad, things didn't work out how I thought they would and how I had it planned. I had a really good plan, Dad. Not hey, I had this job, but it was someone else's fault and someone else stole from me and they wouldn't do it. And that, not Dad, hey, Dad, I made a mistake. And I don't know who is here or who's watching online that maybe needs to hear this, but for someone out there, you've maybe and probably never said these three words I have sinned. Because every time you get close to is a but, an and. It's a them, they did it, but you don't understand. It's my counselor said. So you never own it. The son is owning it. I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That I recognize that our relationship is broken, broken, broken. I have no right to call you father, and there is no reason that you would want to call me your son. Our relationship is severed because of my sin. But, I love when Jesus uses that word. But, the father said to his servants. I mean, how cool is that? He doesn't even address his son. Why didn't he address his son? Because the father knew his son now gets it. He knew he, he knew he recognized what he needed to recognize if they were going to be restored. I mean, if he had walked in, sorry, dad, sorry. Dad, I made a mistake. 
Nothing would have happened. But instead he owned it. He said, I have sinned. I recognize my sin has severed our relationship. He said, the father said to his servants, quick, bring in the best robe and put it on him. Put the best ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And you're like, how's that fair? Like, how's that right? Doesn't he need, that son need to explain some things first? And father's going, nope, because he owns it now with no more excuses. Now we can be restored. And, and, and that is what I care most about. And how cool is this? That Jesus tells this story for my sake. And how cool is it that he told it for your sake and your sake and your sake and your sake. For the son, this son of mine was dead. Our relationship was broken. I say all the time, we think sin makes us bad. Sin doesn't make us bad. Sin makes us dead. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. And what made him alive was that he owned what he did that made our relationship dead. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. And what were they celebrating? The restoration of the relationship. One that wouldn't have been restored without recognition. Without recognizing, I didn't just make a mistake. I have sinned against my father. And Jesus' whole point in telling this parable was that God is on an endless pursuit to restore his relationship with sinners. He's on an endless pursuit to restore his relationship with sinners. But it doesn't happen without first recognizing, I am a sinner. See, the big idea of today is a starting point for faith is recognizing, I am a sinner. And you need to know, acknowledging that, it does not lead to condemnation. Acknowledging it is the way back to relationship. When we think about sin in regards to the starting point for faith in Jesus, you need to know that recognition of sin paves the way to restoration, not condemnation. Recognition of sin paves the way to restoration, not condemnation. Jesus, Jesus would look at you and say, hey, if you think acknowledging that you're a sinner leads to condemnation, you need to know that didn't come for me. My message is you have to embrace what, who you currently are in order to be transformed into everything that God created you to be. You have to embrace that your relationship with, with the God who loves you, with the heavenly father who loves you, is broken because of your sin. And as soon as you recognize that, I'm going to offer you something a mistaker never asks for, I'm going to offer you forgiveness and restoration. Listen, we'd all love to think that we're just mistakers who need correcting and we can just work on it. But you need to know that Jesus says, not that you need to take what Jesus says seriously yet, we're only in week two. You need to know what Jesus says is that you and I are a sinner. And what I know about you, because I know this about myself, is you didn't need this message to know that your problem is deeper than a mistake every once in a while. So I'm going to lead us into something really uncomfortable. We're going to acknowledge out loud together, 
I am a sinner. And I'm going to invite everyone to do this. Everyone sitting in here, young and old, regardless of where you're at in your journey. Everyone, I'm a sinner. At home, you're on your couch with your spouse. You're like, is this going to be weird? Yep, you're in your dorm room. You know, your roommate's still hungover. It's going to get weird for a second in your dorm room when you do that. You know, like, I am a sinner. Now, if you just believe that you're a mistaker, you think that this is baloney, Ronnie, Jesus baloney, you're baloney. I get it. We're all weird. This is weird. Jesus is weird. I'm weird. I get all that. So if you think that you're some mistake, Staker who don't you don't need a, like don't say it out loud. I'm not gonna make you say it out loud. It's not gonna be like watching right now. I'm gonna come down here like you are a sinner, you know. So I just want to like just say this out loud here. See how this works. You ready? Here we go. Let's say one, two, three. I am a sinner. Now listen, you didn't say the I emphatically enough because I know some of you were like, I'm glad they're saying it and she's saying it and they need to especially say it. And I hope my mom or my kid or whoever's watching online, but no, this is not about them. This is about I am a sinner. So we're going to say it together, but the I is going to be like, like I want to hear that. You ready? Here we go. One, two, three. I am a sinner. Woo, feels good, doesn't it? Nope. It gets hard to admit. Like regardless of what you think about Jesus, it's hard to admit. It may be hard to admit, but recognizing it, come on, come on. Recognizing it is actually a means to an end. An amazing transformational end that you can't get any other way. And we'll come back to that later in the series. But today, I just want to give you a few questions to wrestle with before you come back next week. Wrestle with, you know, on, on your way home with your spouse or your kids or, you know, sitting on the couch right now, just get ready to turn it off and wrestle with for a few minutes over lunch. Or those of you who are in starting point groups, you know, wrestle with it with your starting point group. Our T-Life groups, T-Life groups, wrestle through these questions together this week. Just three of them. First, do you resist the idea that you are a sinner? Why or why not? Do you resist that? Why or why not? The second question is connected to it. What are the implications of that? What are the implications of resisting you are a sinner? What are the implications of not resisting you are a sinner? What do you think the implications of that are? And here's this third question. This third question, it looks like it's out of left field. I'll tell you in a second why I'm asking. Oh, I want you to wrestle through this question. But here's the question to wrestle through this week. What does it tell you about who Jesus is that sinners were attracted to him? Now remember, the reason I want you to wrestle through this question this week is because the starting point for faith is a question. We talked about that last week. And the question is, who is Jesus? Well, when you read the accounts of Jesus, you you can't help but but notice that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and Jesus liked them too. People who were sinners liked Jesus... And Jesus liked them too. And so I think the question is, the starting point for faith is the question, who is Jesus? I think this is a really good question to begin wrestling through is what does it tell you about who Jesus is that sinners were attracted to him? As you wrestle through these questions this week, I think it's going to pave the way for what we talk about in the coming weeks. And maybe, just maybe, by the end of this series, your faith will be started or restarted, or reignited, and maybe even grown. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just, uh, 
sitting here acknowledging and recognizing that together that I, me, am a sinner. We are sinners. Um, I just am in awe of you that you continue to love us. And I know some people don't understand this yet and don't believe this at this point, but I'm in awe that you, reckless pursuit of us, that you sent your son to make a way for our relationship to be restored. Thank you for loving us. People who are sinners. Kind of pray as we continue to wrestle that, wrestle through that, wrestle with that this week, that that doesn't lead to condemnation, that it points us to you and it leads to our restoration. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.